turn back with me to Genesis chapter 6. That portion of scripture we read just a few moments ago. Genesis 6. Now, World War One, or the Great War, is an event that still captivates many in the Western world, isn't it? World War One. You know, it's it's something that books are still written about, and it's something that films are uh, still made about. Nearly a hundred years on, we're still come to terms with it. We're still kind of uh, grappling with how such a dreadful, dreadful event came about. World War One, and one of the particular interests or the areas of interest is surely how the war began. Isn't it? And if we know anything about history at all, you know, we know that we can trace the sort of immediate, or in a simplistic level anyway, we can trace the immediate origins of the war back to the shooting of one guy. You know, that, 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 that man, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. It went from that to a situation where something like 70 million military personnel were mobilized. So the beginnings of the war, the reasons behind the war, they're curious, aren't they? And yet, they're fascinating. Now, over the next few weeks as a congregation, what's going to happen is we are going to come to another event of devastation, aren't we? You know, as we look at Genesis, as we go through it as a congregation in the church, we're going to come to another um, momentous event in human history. We're going to be confronted by the flood. And I guess this morning what we've got here is our own kind of Franz Ferdinand moment, don't we? Because we see in the verses that we read together, we see the reason behind the devastation. We see here the reason for the flood. Now, what was that? Why did the flood happen? Well, we learn here in these verses that the flood happened because of the increased wickedness throughout the earth. Get that, the increased wickedness on the earth. So, this morning, in our time together, let's investigate that. Let's examine that in a little more detail. And we're going to have this morning, God willing, three thoughts about increased wickedness. Okay? Three thoughts from what we learn here in these verses about Increased wickedness. So if you're with me, and you're ready, let's begin. Let's think about the first thought, the first point this morning, and that's this. Let's consider increased wickedness and the abuse of marriage. Increased wickedness and the abuse of marriage. Okay, now I don't know if uh, anyone here has ever heard of the Poincare conjecture. 
And even if you have, you might be thinking, well, he's pronouncing that wrong. I I could be. But I think it's called the Poincaré Conjecture. Now, this thing was a sort of a maths conundrum, okay? It was a maths problem that, you know, bamboozled even the greatest mathematical minds for the best part of a century. Well, what we've got in front of us this morning, these verses, is kind of scripture's own Poincaré conjecture, because this little short section, I tell you, it is one of the most complicated and one of the most sort of complex parts of scripture. There is here problem after problem after problem. And the first one is kind of obvious. And I'm sure you picked up on it as we read through it, because the first of the problems is surely the identification of the characters that are involved in this chapter. Did you see that? Now, come on. Who or what are the sons of God? Who or what are the daughters of men, even? And come on, man alive! Who or what are the Nephilim? The Nephilim. Well, let's try and identify the first of those, the sons of God. And in doing so, what will hopefully happen is that we will hopefully cover the other two. So who or what are the sons of God in Genesis 6? Okay. There are two main possibilities. Two main possibilities. The first one, the sons of God here could refer to fallen angels. You follow? They could refer to the fallen angels. Now, the main support for that is found in the book of Job. Because in Job chapter 1, angels are referred to in very, very similar ways. In Job chapter 1, angels are called sons of God. So I guess... The suggestion, then, is that here in Genesis, in these very, very early years of humanity, what happened was that rebellious angels were cast out, they were thrown out of heaven. They came to earth, and they married women, they married descendants of Eve, and they had offspring, these Nephilim that we have here. Now, There's problems with that, isn't there? There's problems with that interpretation. You see, the first problem, the mention of angels would come out of the blue, wouldn't it? You know, nowhere in, you know, we've gone through Genesis 1 to 5 in some detail, nowhere have we, we heard about angels. And we've just come out of the blue. Now, that's a problem. Another problem, second problem with that, Scripture tells us it says nothing about angels marrying. In fact, it says the opposite. Mark chapter 12, I think it's verse 24, it says this. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. They don't marry. 
Third problem. This is the big one. This is the main problem with identifying the sons of God here as fallen angels. Genesis 6, what is it about? What's this passage of scripture about? It's about the punishment of man for sin. Isn't it? It's not about the punishment of angels. It would be so peculiar. It would be so incredibly bizarre to have this picture of judgment of mankind's sin, of this picture of the flood prefaced by a, a mention of angels' wickedness. So I hope you're seeing it is very unlikely that the sons of God here refers to fallen angels. And that means, of course, what does it mean? It means it's also very unlikely that the Nephilim are some sort of, I don't know, angelic human hybrid. They're more, more likely to be a generation of wicked, ungodly people. So it's not fallen angels. Okay. But what about the alternative? What about the second suggestion? Well, let's tell you. This is much, much more plausible. And, although we shouldn't be dogmatic about something as complex as this, the second suggestion about the identification of the sons of God, this is where Calvin's at. This is where Luther's at. This is also what Augustine agreed with. So who were these sons of God in Genesis 6? They were men from the line of sin. They were godly men. They were righteous men. Now, come on. Does that not fit what we've seen so far in Genesis? Does that not fit the context? Just think about what we've seen. Genesis chapter 3. Think back to that. What did we see there? We saw the the separation, didn't we? We saw the, the, the antagonism that would exist between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Then what did we do? We moved into Genesis chapter 4. What did we see? We saw the line of Cain. This wicked line emerged. And then what did we see last week? Do you remember that? We saw that genealogy. We saw the emergence of the line of Seth. And now in chapter 6, what are we confronted by? We have a problem. In Genesis 6, we come to the men of Seth, the godly men, the sons of God, and we find them marrying the daughters of men, the line of Cain. So, you follow me so far, sure, we see that the sons of God, Genesis 6, are righteous men. But folks, that's not enough, is it? That's just not enough. We don't just need to identify who these people were. We don't just need to identify the characters. We need to think about this. We need to digest this, and we need to apply it to our own lives and our own circumstances. And folks, when we do that... I think it takes us to two places. It takes us to two slightly controversial applications. 
You see, in this section of scripture that speaks of increased sin and increased wickedness, what do we see right at the start? In this section that speaks of increased dirt and filth and sin, what do we see right at the heart of this flagrant developing sin? We see the distortion and the corruption of marriage. That's what we see. Right at the the heart of this society here in Genesis that is falling apart, the society that is falling into decay and sin, we see an abuse. We see the perversion of marriage. Now, think about it. We we saw that in chapter 4 in the polygamy of Lamech. And again, we see it here. Now, should that not be a warning to our country? Should that not be a a warning to our government? Should that not be a warning to, to every single one of us in this room today? You see, God, in his love and in his grace, he has given us gifts for the preservation and for the enrichment of society. And is it any wonder that when we turn our backs on these things, that we reap rewards for that. See, friends, if we turn our backs on biblical marriage, what happens? If we see an abuse of marriage, if we see the perversion of marriage, what happens? Well, we see here in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 6, that that is accompanied by, that goes hand in hand with, a further decline into sin. But the second application, if it is possible, if it be possible, it is more controversial than that. You see, folks, do you see the root of the problem that we've got here in chapter 6? Do you see the root of the problem? The root, the core of the problem was that there were godly people. There were followers of God entering into relationships and entering into marriages with ungodly people. The problem here is of spiritual intermarriage. Spiritual intermarriage. And with that, we're back to familiar ground. With that, we're back to something that we have looked looked at as a congregation before. We're back to the simple biblical truth that Christians should not be unequally yoked. That Christians, hear this, Christians should not marry unbelievers. And yet, I know that we've looked at it before in recent months. But perhaps, perhaps there's someone in this room just now that really really needs to hear that again. Christians, don't marry unbelievers. You see, what is it that that, that the sons of God do here? You see it? It says that they saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And then it says they chose 
them for their wives. Now, as Christians, that is not how we roll. That is not how we do things as Christians. You know, when it comes to choosing a spouse, it is a lot more than whether the spouse is attractive. It's, it's, it's much more than just the superficial thing. What does it come down to? It comes down to who God chooses. It comes down to spiritual compatibility. Spiritual compatibility, friends. I hope you see it. I hope you see that in Genesis 6, we've got a picture of increased sin. And it is testified to by this flagrant and horrific abuse and perversion of marriage. Now, it's probably the case in England, and it's probably the case in lots of other parts of the world too, but certainly in Scotland, um, when kids are in their early years of secondary education, they all have to witness the same scientific experiment. Okay, I was talking to my dad, who's a science teacher, about this. And... uh, The experiment involves adding blue dye to samples that are taken from streams or water, or streams or rivers. Blue dye. Now, if that water sample that you've got, if it's a clean water sample, it's taken from a clean river or a stream, when you add the blue dye to that, do you know what happens? Nothing happens. The water is clean, the blue dye remains exactly the same. But, if that water is from a polluted stream, if it's from a dirty stream, and you add this blue dye, do you know what happens? Amazingly, what happens is that blue dye becomes completely transparent. The blue dye, if there's dirt in the water, the blue dye changes and it becomes clear. And that is what's happening in Genesis chapter in these verses. Because what we've got here is a revelation of filth. That's what we've got here. This section here, it exposes the dirt. It exposes the grime of mankind's sin. And we see that in our second point. And that is that the increased wickedness was all-encompassing. Please hear that. The increased wickedness was all-encompassing. And we see that firstly in the the, the predictability of it all, you know, the predictability of sin. Because verse 1 says, when men began to increase in number, what happened? When men began to increase, then it is accompanied by the sin of marriage, distorting marriage. Do you get it? The two things go hand in hand. When man increases in the earth, what happens? Sin also increases. There's this this sort of inevitable, they are inevitable companions. They are happy bedfellows. Wherever you find man, wherever you find man, you also find sin in abundance, with the exception of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see the predictability of sin here, don't we? But secondly, we also see the personality of sin. The personality of sin. Now, 
Folks, when we think about sin, there is a regular, a frequent mistake that we make when we consider our own wickedness and sin, isn't it? You know, we can dilute sin in our minds. We can lessen it and reduce it to merely thinking about ungodly actions, right? You know, when we think about people sinning, when we think about our own sin, we think about, I don't know, let's take an example. Let's think about people drinking too much. You know, I I sinned. Then you think, well, I I, I went, and I went somewhere that I shouldn't have done. I said something that I shouldn't have said. But not here. And these verses that sin is much more widespread than that. Sin has a a bigger, bigger personality than that. Just look at verse 5. Look at it. It says that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was evil. The thoughts of man's heart. Now, for the ancient people of God, reading that, the heart was the wasn't just the, the organ of passion and emotion like it is for us. For the ancient people of God, the heart was also the organ of thought. It was the organ of contemplation. So do you see what we're being told? Friends, such is our wickedness, such is our sin, that even our imagination is scarred by sin. You know, even our thoughts, even our opinions, all of these things, they are polluted, they are affected by increased wickedness. So predictability, sin is predictable. And there's sin's personality, but the third thing here, see the prevalence of sin. The prevalence of sin. Now folks, I would urge you, if your Bibles are open, have a look at verse 5. Have a look at the end of verse 5. It says this, The Lord saw that Every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil. All the time. Every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart. Always evil. All the time. What a description that is. What a what a horrific description. What we've got here is Sheer, comprehensive, all-encompassing wickedness. I'll tell you what we've got there. We have got a picture of the total depravity of man. The total depravity of man. Now, what do we do with that? How do we apply that extensive, extensive picture of sin? Well, first of all, Surely what we've got to do with that is we've got to understand sin as being more than just our wrongful actions. So when you pray this week, when you pray later on today, I would urge you to be specific in your repentance about what you do, 
and what you say that you shouldn't have said, but more than that, when we bow before a holy and a perfect God, let's repent over our wicked thoughts. Let's repent about the attitude that we come to church with. Let's repent about the attitude that we have to our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And most of all, let us repent over the attitude that we sometimes have to our God. But we must also see that this dirt-ridden picture, this abhorrent race that we've got here in Genesis chapter 6, that is a picture of the unregenerate man. You a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you? Well, that picture there is a picture of what your heart was like before Jesus Christ came and died and saved you. Now, should that not make us rejoice? Look at what we are saved from. We should praise Jesus Christ with everything that we are and everything we have. Because he has saved us, and he saved us from the predictability of sin. And he saved us from the personality of sin. And he has saved us from the prevalence of sin. Praise Jesus Christ. And then, our third point. Now, my wife was telling, telling me a story the other day, just a couple of days ago. And it was a story about friends of ours. Friends in the family. And the mother in that family, boy, she had done a foolish thing. She had left her children, multiple children, uh, in a room of the house, in their bedroom. Closed the door, got on with whatever she was getting on with. But the kids went exploring, and what they found in one of the drawers was crayons and pens. You know already where the story is going, don't you? And of course, uh, the mother of her friend came back, and 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, what did she find? She finds the most beautiful uh, scribbles all over the walls, all over uh, the house. And when she returned, you can imagine the reaction, can't you? There was, as she opens the door and sees this picture, there was an inevitable reaction to what she found. And that's what we've got in closing. In our third point, the increased wickedness led to assured judgment. The increased wickedness led to assured judgment. Because first of all, friends, you see it, God takes offense to this, doesn't he? He takes offense. Do you see that in verse 6? Verse 6 says... The Lord was, now what's the word? Did you get it in verse 6? The Lord was grieved that he made man. Now what is that telling us? He was grieved. Now does that mean that God regretted making man? Is that what it means? Does it mean that God sort of changed his mind about making man? And if it means that, can God change his mind about other things? Can God change his mind about the plan of salvation well no thankfully it's, this is not about regret this is not about changing 
of God's mind. What we've got is anthropomorphic language. We've got God being described in human terms so that we can understand him properly. So this is not a change of heart. You know, we looked at this before. First Samuel 15. Do you remember that? What does it say? It says that God does not lie. God does not change his mind. Now what we've got here is God's disappointment. What we've got here is God's anger at this display of sin, this display of increased wickedness in front of him. And surely that, especially for Christians in here, surely that has an effect, doesn't it? And surely the words of verse 7 just cut us, don't they? Look at verse 7. God's heart was filled with pain. It was filled with pain. So for you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, does that expression not demand change in your life? Your sin, it says here, it grieves God. Your sin, it pains the heart of God. If anything, surely that will drive us to our knees before God. In repentance, surely it will. So he takes offence, but secondly, God takes action, doesn't he? He takes action. Now we see that initially in response to the sons of God. Remember that marriage problem at the beginning? Well, we see God take action. What does He do? These righteous men, their spiritual intermarriage. So what does He do? He acts. He intervenes. And he reduces the lifespan of man to 120 years. But more significantly than that, we see at the end of the section a warning. And it's a warning for all of us here this morning. God promises in verse 7 to wipe mankind from the face of the earth. Do you see what it is? This is a warning of God's inevitable reaction to sin. Where there is sin, where there is wickedness, there will be God's righteous hand of judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll tell you this. I'm pleased it doesn't end there. Are you not pleased that the section doesn't end there? And I rejoice in God for two words. And they are the two words that we will end with this morning. I praise God for the first two words of verse 8. The words, but Noah. But Noah. You see, despite this picture that we've looked at, you know, this horrendous picture of sin, this horrendous picture of increased wickedness, what does God do? How does God act? Well, he decides to do something. He decides in his love to preserve a remnant. 
he decides to save this man Noah and to save his family. And know what it says about Noah. It says, and this is so crucial, it says that Noah found favor with God. Now it doesn't say Noah won favor with God. It says that Noah found favor with God. Why was Noah saved? It wasn't to do with any sort of inherent goodness. Noah was saved. Because our God is a God of love. Our God is a God of unwarranted favor. Our God is a God of grace. And so can I say to you today that the great news, the great news is that the same thing can be said of you this morning. Friends, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you can have your heart cleansed from this sin. And in Jesus Christ, you can be saved and you can be preserved from that great judgment that is coming. That devastation that is going to engulf the rest of the mankind. So, I say to you this morning, embrace that opportunity. You have an opportunity today. Call out to God. And friends, all of us, let's praise our God. Let's praise him for his grace and for these two simple, yet wonderful, wonderful words. What great words they are, aren't they? But, Noah. What amazing grace. Let's pray.